And let's begin reading at verse number 12. Luke chapter 9, verse number 12. The Word of God says, And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about, and lodge and get victuals. For we are here in a desert place. But he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes except we should go and buy meat for all this people. For they were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down by fifties in a company. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed them and brake and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. And there was taken up of the fragments that remained of them, to, or that remained to them twelve baskets. Let's read verse 16 once more. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and break, and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word tonight. Lord, I know that me and the frailty and failure of my flesh that I cannot be blessed by a holy God. But I know tonight that I stand perfect through the justification of Jesus Christ, through Him and Him alone. And I know, Lord, that I can be blessed because of who He is tonight. But Father, I know also that Your Word is perfect, it is inspired, it is infallible, and it is preserved. And I know, Lord, that You can always bless Your Word. So I'd ask that You would bless Your Word to the hearts of Your people that you would accomplish in them and in me, Lord, that which would bring the most glory to your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you tonight. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In verse number 16, there are two little words that are used that give me great interest this evening and great encouragement. I preached this morning about two little words, and I hope that it was an encouragement to you, the two words, their faith. But tonight we have two words that may even in and of themselves seem more obscure, less significant. But I believe that if we'll pay a little bit of attention to them tonight, that we'll gain great insight into the truths that are found in several passages. Look at verse 16 again and see if you can notice them with me. The Bible says, Then he took. You know, sometimes there's a danger in studying the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, in not recognizing the impact and the significance of certain actions that for you or I would be every day, would be commonplace. But to the Son of God, I would propose that there is nothing that was just every day. There is nothing that was just commonplace. You see, when I read in this passage, and I'm told that the Son of God reached out His hand and took this, uh, these loaves and these fishes into his hand, I read that something extraordinary happened that had never happened before. He prayed, and he began to break the bread, and he began to break the fishes and distribute them, and multitudes were fed. You see, there's great significance, not when I take something, but when he takes hold of something. See, if you or I had been there that day, and if the bread and the fish had been handed to you or I, we couldn't have done any more than diminish it. Yet in the hands of the Son of God, He can multiply it. You see, these are the hands of a Creator. 
These are the hands of one that pulled back the curtain of nothing, stepped out into darkness and flung into existence everything that we see around us. These are the hands that were pierced for your sins and mine upon Calvary, these are the hands that reach down into the mud, spit in a little bit of mud, and open a man's blinded eyes. These are the hands that were raised to calm a raging storm. What I'm trying to say tonight is when you and I take hold of a situation, we make a mess of things. But when God takes hold of a situation, something extraordinary happens. You see, what happened in this moment was that all that they had to provide for themselves left human hands and went into divine hands. I don't know about you, but I don't believe in coincidence, nor do I believe in luck. It's not to say I'd never use the terms just inadvertently in conversation, but truly I don't believe in coincidence, nor do I believe in luck. I believe in divine appointment and I believe in divine blessing. And I believe that God has things a certain way for a certain reason. And even tonight through this service, God has been talking about meeting the needs of His people through His people. And as I read this passage, I'm keenly and consciously aware of the truth that what may seem like it isn't enough, what may seem insignificant to me and you, what may seem insufficient for the task at hand, if we'll just put it in the hands of God, it can be something that meets our needs. We're going to read tonight four different instances where our Lord took something. Where He left the hands of humans and entered the hands of God. And something extraordinary happened. I want us to notice first off in our passage tonight that He took these loaves for the sufficiency of His people. You can see the picture in your mind's eye uh, out in this desert place. It's hot, it's dismal, and it's abysmal. The people have been, uh, they've journeyed a great distance that they might hear the words of the Son of God. They've tarried longer than common sense would have told them they should have. Their victuals are gone. Whatever they would have brought with them has been expended. And these people are literally at the end of what they have and what they can do. Could I just simply say to you tonight that you'll find, you'll find a lot of God at the end of yourself. And I'm, I'm not trying to speak about some sort of universalism or inner, I'm just merely saying for the believer, you'll find that you'll get to know God a lot better when you've bankrupted yourself. Not just financially, but emotionally, uh, spiritually with your strength. Once you get to the place that you put it all in God's hands, you'll find He can do something with it. It would have never seemed very significant. And you can see the, the look sort of in the disciples' eyes, and you can imagine uh, sort of the inward eye-rolling that maybe took place when Philip said that all we have is this little lad, this little boy, all we have are five loaves and two fishes. And then he says, but what are they among so many? But you see, the key to God intervening is not what we have, but who we have. And it's not our means, but it's our master that can make the difference in our lives. Christmas time is a difficult time for a lot of people. Uh, It's time for a lot of folks of great depression. It's a time of great discouragement. It's a time of darkness for a lot of folks. Uh, There's probably not a one of us that hasn't lost somebody around Christmas that we love dearly. And it's hard for us to fathom, especially if you if you don't combat that, if you don't deal with that, it's probably hard for you to fathom what it's like for such a joyous season to bring thoughts like that to a person's mind. But it's not just the memories and it's not just missing those that have gone on. 
But a lot of God's people during this time, uh, and, and by the way, a lot of times, sometimes it's because of overspending, sometimes it's because of materialism, but sometimes it's because things get tougher in wintertime. And a lot of times God's folks are struggling. Now, I, we're going to talk about a lot more important things than the bills you have to pay tonight, but I do think it's worth mentioning that God can meet your needs financially. God can. Anybody that's spent any time giving to the Lord and watching Him answer will tell you that they've spent a lot of times with less money than they had bills, but God saw them through. It may not seem like much, but if you'll put it in the hands of the Lord, He'll do something with it. What would have happened if this man had said, if this young boy had said, No, no, that's mine, it belongs to me, and I'll keep it. A lot of folks think that this boy gave the five loaves and the two fishes because he wanted to give something to the Lord. I don't believe that. I believe he gave them because he thought they belonged to the Lord anyway. I don't believe he gave them just as a gift. I believe he gave them because he figured they belonged to the Lord, and if the Lord needed them, the Lord could have them. Can I tell you where we've gotten so backward on our giving? We think just because it's called giving that it means that it's a gift. But there's not a single thing you've got that God didn't bless you with in the first place. Not a single thing. And some would say, well, I've worked hard. I've earned it. Well, maybe you have, but who gave you the health? Who allowed you to live? Who gave you the me- who gave you the mind? You see, it's God that's allowed that. It's God that's done that. And, and when we talk about biblical giving, we're not talking about you putting yourself out that you might give a gift to God. No, we're talking about you relinquishing to Him what already belongs to Him. Not so that God can build His coffers full. God's coffers are already full. Uh, but the purpose behind biblical giving is it's an exercise of faith that God uh, might be able to bless us in our lives because we've honored Him with what He's given us. What I'm trying to say tonight is you may not have much and it may not seem like much, but I've seen God take small amounts and small things and just begin to break them and multiply them and multiply them and multiply them for His glory. I don't have a lot to do with the finances around here. Uh, Sometimes I'll keep an idea of kind of how much money we got, but by and large, I I don't know who gives what. I have no idea. I know what me and my wife give. That's the only two people in this church that I know who and what they give, and, and that's my choice. If I wanted to, I guess I could know. I'd prefer not to know. But it's amazed me what I've seen God do through our little church. And how I've seen God multiply and bless. Times when there should have been famine, but there was feasting. Times when we should have been cutting back and we were pressing forward. Not because we're a church full of a bunch of rich people. If it's a church full of a bunch of rich people, I don't know about it. And if I don't know about it, I'm mad about something. Amen. But because God has multiplied what His people have given, not so that we can, not so that we can set it back and and pat our pockets, not so we can set it back and feel comfortable, but so that we can use it for the glory of God. You see, this little boy, he he didn't give this food so that the Savior could have a meal. He gave this food so that everybody could have a meal. And you know, one of the reasons that people don't give is because they think they're giving so the church can have it. And I guess some churches have led them to feel that way and believe that way. I've, I've known some churches that was in the banking business myself. But the truth of the matter is, if we're using it for the glory of God, it's not so that the Lord can have a meal. He could have all the meals that He wanted. But it's so that other people and God's people can be fed, and it's so that sinners can be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I guess what I'm saying tonight is this. Don't be afraid to do what God's asked you to do. If God's asked you to give, whether it's of your time or of your finances, maybe God's asked you to give emotionally. God does that sometimes. 
You ever have God tell you to love somebody that you don't want to love? I have. I know, you know, I'm a preacher and preachers love everybody, right? No, sometimes God burdens our heart with somebody. And we don't want to love them and we don't want to open our heart to them. But can I just encourage you that if what you've got you'll give to the Lord, God will multiply it and grow it and use it for His glory and for His honor. I see that He took the loaves for sufficiency. Turn with me to Mark chapter number 9. Mark chapter number 9. And I want us to see a second time. In Luke chapter number 9, we see that He took the loaves for sufficiency. But in Mark chapter number 9, something enters the hands of Jesus Christ that is not like anything else that we'll talk about tonight. It's wholly unique, and I think it's worth pointing out. Mark chapter number 9, look at verse 33. The Word of God says, And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and a servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And we had taken him in his arms. He said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. I want you to note first off that he took the loaves for sufficiency. But I want you to notice secondly that he took the lad for simplicity. His disciples had been disputing and... uh, They must have been Baptists. You know, I bounce back and forth as to whether the disciples were Baptists. When they're doing something I'm proud of, it worries me they weren't. But uh, then at moments like this, I think, oh, they had to be, you know. Because here they are on the way in, and, and they're looking at each other, and they're saying, who's the greatest among us? And if I know the human condition, they weren't saying, oh, you're the greatest. No, you're the greatest. But I have a sneaking suspicion they may have been saying something like this. Well, you know, I'm the greatest. Because I was called into the ministry before you were. Or I'm the greatest because the Lord did this in my life. Old Peter must have left out. He must have said, I know I'm not the greatest. You raised my mother-in-law from the dead. (laughs) But they're disputing back and forth. And the Lord reaches out and he grabs hold of a little child. And he says, I want you to look at this child. Because this child is a picture of the faith that you must have. And he takes that child in his hands. Now stop and think about it for a moment. The hand of God reached out and touched this child. And why did it do it? The hand of God reached out and touched this child because of the simplicity and faith that this child had. There's other instances where the Lord points to a childlike faith. Not a childish faith, but a childlike faith. The ability to trust in spite of daunting circumstances. You know that... that Uh, really, you look at the faith that a child has in their parents, and it is absolutely mind-boggling. The child, I've seen it uh, uh, several times, but I've seen it particularly this week as our son is under the weather and he's sick, and we were talking about it before the service began, how that, uh, you know, a, a child, I mean, they love their daddy. A little boy, he loves his daddy. He really does. He, I, and, and, I mean, it tugs my heartstrings how much he loves me. But when he gets sick, he don't want daddy. He wants mama. And that little boy who feels so terrible. And you know, me and you, we understand at least to a degree why we feel bad. But a little child doesn't understand. They just know something's wrong. They don't know. You and I, when we get sick, 
We may act like we're dying, but most of the time we know we're not. But a little child, how terrifying, how fearful it must be for them to go through sickness that first few times, not understand what's taking place. But you let that little child be laid in the arms of his mom, and though he may not understand, and though he may not know the outcome, he knows that if his mama is there, everything is going to be okay. And so completely and so thoroughly does a child trust their parents. Most children, they don't ever go to the refrigerator just to see if there's anything in there, just to make sure there's something in there. When they open the refrigerator door, they're opening because they know there's something in there. They give no real thought as to where it comes from, as to what it's taken to get it there. And the truth of the matter, you and I, if we can learn to take our lives, I'm talking about our lives now, and place them in the hands of the Son of God, we'd find that there is a comfort and there is a peace within that childlike faith that passeth all understanding. It's no wonder so many of us die so early we worry ourselves to death. We do. We're all guilty of it. I don't care who you are. We're all guilty of a degree of, of worry. Trying to take upon us problems that we cannot solve. Trying to take upon us things in the future that we cannot possibly know. And how guilty are all of us of saying, I've got to figure it out. I've got to find it out. I've got to work it out. When the truth of the matter is, we don't have the wherewithal to find it out. We don't have the means to figure it out. We ain't got the smarts to work it out. How much better we would be if we would just lean upon the everlasting arms and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you with my every day, and I'm going to give my life into your hands. A child, to a degree, has a streak of rebellion in them. Every child does. But in another sense, as the parent deals with them, the child's will is broken and is uh, conformed to the will of the parent. And even that is an act of faith. We're living in a day when that practice is quickly waning and disappearing. But most of you knew what it was to grow up and... In your home, your mom and daddy, they were law. There wasn't no talking back. There wasn't no arguing. There wasn't no, no fussing about it. And can I say that I believe that's biblical? I believe that's biblical. It's not going to stifle your child's independence to make them mine. It's going to stifle their disobedience, but it's not going to stifle their independence. It won't hamper their creativity if you make them mine. All it's going to do is hamper their rebellion. I believe that's biblical. And in the same way, we as a child, do you remember what the psalmist said? The psalmist, in speaking about a time in his life in which he was, was struggling and fighting and contending against God, and he did not understand the things that were taking place in his life, uh, the book of Psalms says, I believe it's one, uh, Psalms 132, the psalmist says that I behaved and quieted myself like a child. You know what that is. That's when your child, their will is finally broken. And they quiet down and they sit down and then they can be taught. You know why a lot of us aren't gaining any ground in our Christian life? We've not quieted and behaved ourselves like a child between the Almighty God and us. We're still fighting Him. We're still kicking Him. We're still trying to take things into our hands, but therein lies the very problem is that our hands will make a mess of things. If we could just learn like this little child to be placed in God's hands for our everyday decisions we'd find we'd be the better for it. You know that God is a good parent? God's a good parent. Would you say that a parent that lets their child run wild is a good parent? I know that the state probably come in, take me away, take you away, take everyone away for saying it. 
But do you believe that a parent that won't discipline their child is a good parent? Well, God's a good parent. God will discipline His children. It's an irrefutable biblical fact that chastening comes to those that belong to the Lord, only to those that belong to the Lord, and to everyone that belongs to the Lord. The Bible says, Every Lord, every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, scourgeth every son whom he... Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Every son. Whoever you are, if you know the Lord, you've dealt with the chastening hand of God. And it's not because God hates you, it's because He loves you. But how much better would we be when God chastens us if we straightened the knees that are, that are feeble and lifted up the hands that hang down and if we continued ahead rather than burying ourselves in self-pity and saying, God, why did you do this to me? If instead we straightened up and said, Lord, if you'll help me to walk on, I'll walk on and I'll put my life in your hands. We see that he took the lad for simplicity. Turn with me now to John chapter 13. John chapter number 13. We've seen how in Luke chapter number 9 he took the loaves for sufficiency. And we've seen in Mark chapter 9 how that he's taken the lad for simplicity. But look with me in John 13. You'll find something that's not recorded in any other gospel. And it's very unique. Notice with me verse number 1. The Word of God says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil had now, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He was come from God and went to God, he riseth up from supper, and he laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. We see that he took the labor for service. Very unique thing that happens here in the upper room. I, there's a lot I'm going to say about it in a short time. Some of it's just merely doctrinal and practical truth that, that this sermon affords an occasion to mention that I believe needs to be mentioned. I've heard some folks say, well, preacher, are you, I've had folks ask me, are you against foot washing before? Uh, well, no, I mean, I think if your feet's dirty, you ought to wash them. Amen? But I do not believe that foot washing is an ordinance of the New Testament church. And I want to give you two reasons for that. One is because there is no precedent for it in the New Testament church. You won't find a single instance in the book of Acts or in the Pauline epistles in which foot washing was practiced in a New Testament church. Now, either we're to believe that this is something that was given at the end of the advent of Scripture. And by the way, nothing's been given after the end of the advent of Scripture. Neither by Popal Bull, a papal bull or edict or by the, the, any council, whether it's, it's Nicene or any other sort of council. The Word of God is our supreme authority in faith and in practice. And so there's no instance, no precedent for it. Let me give you a second reason, and you'll see it there in the passage before you. Christ looks at His disciples and He says this, What I do now, ye know not. What I do now, ye know not. I'm not a smart man, I'll confess that to you. But he looked at his disciples, and if I read my Bible correctly, and I believe I do on this matter, 
they knew that he was washing their feet. Correct? So evidently the truth wasn't that of washing feet. We understand, if you've studied your Bible, that this was picturesque of the communion and the forgiveness that would take place through communion between the believer and God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. It was common at that time in that part of the Oriental world that a person, whenever they would uh, come in, they would go uh, down to an outside water source and they would bathe themselves uh, from head to toe. And they would get completely clean to the best of their ability. And our Lord even denoted this when He talked about His disciples. And He said, now are ye clean, but not every whit. He was speaking about Judas when He said that. He was saying, you're clean through the Word which I've spoken to you, but not all of you, because Judas is not clean. But they, they had been cleaned, and then they would come into the house. But between the bathing spot and the house, they would wear sandals. It was dusty roads. And it was very common for their feet to be dirty before they came into the house. And so it was common practice in that day uh, for the person that that owned the house, that was hosting whatever event that they were at, uh, either himself if if he was not a wealthy person, or his servants if he had servants, they would take a water basin, they would kneel at the feet of those that had come in, and they would wash their feet. The, The scriptural picture that is set before us is this. We've been through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been washed white as snow through His precious blood. We are clean completely from head to toe. But it doesn't change the fact that as we walk through this filthy world, we still get sin in our lives. We still mess up. In other words, I've been justified before God, and I'm seen perfect before Him. Positionally, I'm exactly what I ought to be through the person of Jesus Christ. But practically speaking, I still mess up. I still fail. I get sin in in my life and it causes problems in my communion and fellowship with God. And so I must come to Jesus Christ and ask forgiveness and confess my sins and He will forgive me. First John 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John's not written to the sinner, it's written to the believer. And there's that need of cleansing in our daily lives. But I believe, too, that there is a truth here that goes even a step further. And that is the humility which the Savior exhibited in doing this. And the willingness to take a job that many would not want to do and to put it in His own hands and to accomplish it. Let me just say a word about serving God and then we'll move on. You understand that the only way to serve God is through surrender and submission. This thing of serving God, it's not done by steadfast. We need to be steadfast. But it's not just simply done through our steadfastness. We need to have energy in serving God, but it's not just done through our energy. Uh, we need to have a, a, a mindset and a plan, and we need to have structure. I, believe, I don't believe God's against structure. I've known some preachers that believe God's against structure. Uh, they, they believe that you ought to have no idea what you're preaching, where you're preaching from, why you're preaching it, no idea what's going on in a service. I'm not against having a little bit of struggle. I'm not against God's place being a place that is uh, run decently and in order. And I believe that uh, God is a God of order and that all things are to be done in order. But it's not our order that accomplishes it. It's not our structure or our format that accomplishes it. There's a lot of time spent fussing about the incidentals in the Christian life. You know that? A lot of time fussing about the incidentals in the Christian life. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean this. When a man stands in a pulpit, I don't care whether he's got notes or not, as long as he's got a message from God. If he's got notes, God bless him. If he doesn't, God bless him. 
I've preached with, I've preached without. But as long as he's got a message, that's all that matters to me. It doesn't bother to me one bit. I've had folks ask me before. I, I had one fellow ask me. I hadn't been here long, and, and we went and visited them in their house, and they asked me this question. They said, now, preacher, if my daughter just felt led to just get up and start singing in the middle of a service, how would you feel about that? And I said, well, is, would, would God be in it? <laughs> and he just looked at me. He didn't know what to say to that. I said, well, would God be in it? He said, finally, he said, well, yeah, God would. I said, well, if God's in it, then I'm in it. Amen? If God's in it, I'm in it. I've been in services like that. They're unique, though. They're rare. There are times God does that. What I'm merely saying is this. There's some folks fuss about having an order of service in a bulletin. Some folks want it. Some folks don't. There's some folks that fuss about having things scheduled out. That's all incidental. You're focusing on the wrong thing. Here's the question. Do we have the presence and power of God? Do we have the message of God? I believe God's big enough to do it through structure, and I believe God is big enough to do it through chaos if He chooses to do it. So I believe we need to focus on whether we've got God in the midst. You see, the truth of the matter is, all these things are incidental. There's one grand truth to serving God, and that is this. You must put the towel in His hands and ask Him to do what you cannot. See, the truth of the matter is, He would tell His disciples to do what He had done. And yet he had also told him, what I do now, you know not. So that tells me two truths. It tells me one truth is this. It tells me that it wasn't about washing feet. But it tells me that what he was doing there, what was pictured by the washing of feet, was something that they should practice, and that is the action of forgiving one another, and we should do that. But understand that if he had never took the towel, they could never take the towel. Let me say it again. I don't know if we got that. If he had never took the towel, they could have never took the towel. And it ain't just about forgiveness either. You see, there's not a thing that you can do but what it's been put into God's hands first. Nothing that you do will accomplish anything unless you, you give it over to the hands of an almighty God first. Whether it's witnessing and soul winning. Whether, I, I, listen, I don't care if you're tra- changing trash cans. You'll do it in the wrong spirit if you're not doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to learn to put the towel in His hands. We've got to learn to look to Him for the strength that we need. Every time you come through those doors, I hope you come through those doors because that's what Jesus wants. Not because it's what you want. Not because it's what's expected of you. But I hope you come through those doors because you put the towel in His hand. I hope that every time that you give out a gospel track or every time that you witness to someone, it's not because you want attention. It's not because you want praise. It's not because you want another notch in your belt. I hope that you do it because you put the towel in Jesus' hands and you've asked Him to do what you cannot do. And He's leading and guiding and directing you. Let me show you one more and we'll close. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I thought it was very, very fitting that the Lord ordered things in such a way this evening. And if you go here, you know I don't say this all the time. But I believe that the Lord has ordered everything in this service tonight. And I want us to look in Matthew chapter 26. And we'll close with this thought. Look at verse number 26. Here they are in the upper room. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. 
But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Did you see it? The Word of God tells us that He took the bread and He took the cup. Now, what was He doing when He did this? I'm not going to go into all the dispensational implications of the drinking of this cup in the new kingdom. But what the Son of God was saying is this. Just as the towel and the basin had two parallel truths that could be applied to it, so too do the bread and the cup. Because in one sense, He was never again in this life or in His life going to eat of the bread and of the cup of the vine. There upon the cross, vinegar would be given to him. But we have no, no scriptural record after this in this life, in this life, before he was resurrected, of him drink, of him eating the bread or drinking of the vine. The reason is because there was a different type of bread and a different type of cup that he was about to partake in. Let me say that in Luke chapter number 9, we see that he took the lad for sufficiency. And in Mark chapter number 9, we are, uh, he took the loaves for sufficiency. And in Mark chapter number 9, he took the lad for simplicity. We see that in John chapter 13, that he took the labor for service. But can I just say, thank God tonight, that in Matthew chapter 26, we have this truth, that he took the load for sinners. He took something that they couldn't take until he had took it first. He broke the body, broke the bread. He said, this is the body that is broken for you. The Word of God teaches us that a bone in Him was never broken. It's part of the reason that we believe when He was pierced, He wasn't pierced through the palm, but rather through the wrist is because uh, two reasons. One, because there are bones there that would be broken if He was pierced in the midst of the palm. And then two, because it could not have held the weight of a grown man, the bones and the skin and the sinews that are there. Uh, but here you can feel a place in where the two bones and the arm meet together, and there we believe that his hand was pierced. Uh, but his bones were never broken, the Scripture prophesied. But his body, the Bible teaches us, was broken for you and I. The Word of God teaches us, and it's quoting the book of Psalms, but in the book of Hebrews concerning the Son of God, the Bible says that uh, sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body didst thou prepare me. Is from the book of Psalms speaking prophetically of our Savior. He took the body. When did He take the body? He took the body in Bethlehem when He was incarnate, born of a virgin and incarnate into this world. And He took that body upon Himself. Isn't it interesting that when the angel comes to Mary and speaks about the body of Jesus Christ, He says that holy thing that is within you. He does not say that holy person that is within you. Why? Because at that time, He wasn't within that body. That body was growing independently of Him at that time. And it was a holy thing. You say, why was it a holy thing, preacher? Because it had no earthly father. Therefore, it had no uh, sin nature. It was a holy thing. But there, in Bethlehem, He inhabited that body. And He was born into this world. And for 33 and a half years, he lived in that body. He lived a perfect and sinless life. There is not one charge you could have laid against Jesus Christ. They tried many, many times, and many, many times he refuted them. But they could not lay a single valid charge against him. And then you know the beauty of it. He took that body, that perfect body, that sinless body, that was representative of the life that He had lived for you and I. 
And He allowed wicked men with wicked hearts to nail that body to a cross so that the perfect, sinless life that He had lived could be transferred, imputed, this is the biblical word, imputed unto you and I. When are we going to get it through our heads that we can't live perfectly? When are we going to get it through our minds that our best is not good enough? For our best is imperfect. And a holy God demands perfection. You see, the truth of the matter is, we could not have withstood Calvary. If we had died upon Calvary, we would have not paid for our sins. And we surely couldn't have paid for another's sins. You know that the sinner never pays for their sins. If they did, they'd be able to leave hell one day. But the Bible tells us that the smoke of that place ariseth forever. And the sinner is forever in weeping and gnashing of teeth and in darkness. The sinner can't even pay for his own sins. I'm not going to get into too deep a theological territory, but you understand that when Jesus Christ died on Calvary, He satisfied the judgment of God for everyone. For everyone. I'm not talking about universalism. If a person rejects Jesus Christ, they die and go to hell. But God's justice and God's righteousness has been satisfied and vindicated already. Why? Because of the finished work of Christ on Calvary. That's the only way that God's judgment could be satisfied. Because the sinner can't satisfy the judgment of God. And even if he could, he couldn't satisfy it for anyone else. For he has his own sins to pay for. See, the truth of the matter is, your your best isn't good enough. The very exhausting of punishment, exhaust, uh, exhaustment, I guess that's a word, isn't it? <laughs> the exhausting of your punishment would not be enough. The truth of the matter is there's only one way for your sins to be atoned for. And that's through the finished work of Christ on Calvary. He took the bread. We couldn't take the bread. What seemed to be an insignificant thing, the Bible says of our Lord's earthly body and of our Lord growing up, that there is, there is no form nor comeliness that we should desire Him. He would look like a very ordinary individual. I know you've been taught by all the commercials and children's cartoons and paintings and velvet pictures that Jesus is white with blue eyes and long hair. But we have every reason to believe He would have looked like any other Jew that would have been walking through Galilee at that time. He would have looked like anyone else. There wasn't anything remarkable about Him. If you had looked upon Him, there would have been nothing that would have clued you in that He was the the Son of God if you didn't know Him. Something that was wholly ordinary. And wholly insignificant, just a body similar to anyone else's in appearance. And yet when the Son of God indwelt it, it became something extraordinary. Then he takes the cup. The cup is a picture of his blood. It's not fermented wine. Say, so how do you know that preacher? Oh, I've got a lot of reasons I know that. One of the reasons I know that is because the Bible says that wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. See, I don't believe that God would make a fool out of us every time that we took the Lord's Supper. Do you? No, I don't believe that. But then, too, I believe that it was non-fermented because it would have been an incomplete and inappropriate picture of the spotless and sinless blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fermentation process is the corruption process. 
But our Lord was incorruptible and incorrupt. I believe also, because any, any Bible student knows that there's two types of wine in Scripture. There's new wine and there's old wine. Now, I'm going to confess to you, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not a moonshiner and I, I don't know a lot about the process and I thank the Lord that I don't know a lot about it. But I do know that new wine is non-fermented wine. It's not had the, pro, the, the opportunity to ferment. You see, what was in that cup was the pure, was the harmless blood of the vine. It was grape juice. It was grape juice. And he took that cup and he said, this is the cup of the New Testament. Well, what did he mean? Was it really that cup? No, not that cup. We don't know where that cup is. Indiana Jones found it, but he dropped it down a big old hole. No, we don't, we don't know. It's not that cup. Was it that particular grape juice? No. No, that grape juice is long gone. But it was a picture and a type of what must take place in the life of the sinner if he is to know the Savior. And that is that that precious blood that was shed upon your behalf and upon my behalf, though the righteousness and holiness of God has been satisfied, if we are to find peace with God, we must partake in that cup. We must be willing for the blood to be applied in our lives. Now, as with anything, the type is merely a picture of the anti-type, and the type is not the, the matter of importance at all. Here in a few moments, we'll observe the Lord's Supper. If you're lost and you observe the Lord's Supper, you'll still be lost unless you accept Christ. You can drink all the grape juice. You can eat all the bread that you want. It can't save you. The only thing that can save you is to confess yourself a sinner before an almighty God and ask His forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ. But you know what Christ said? He said, any that come to Me, I will in no wise cast out. Any, any that come to Me, I will in no wise cast out. You know why he could say that? Because the Bible says that Christ has tasted death for every man. When he drank of the cup, he drank of it for you. When, he, when, when, when his body was broken, it was broken for you. And it was broken for you because it had to be broken for you because you couldn't take the bread yourself. Lots of people are going to die and go to hell because they don't want to put the bread in his hands. They don't want to put the cup, they don't want to drink of his cup. They want to drink of the cup of their own good works or their baptism or their church membership. They want to drink the cup of their own goodwill or good attitude or friendliness towards one another. Or they just want to drink of the cup of them just taking a chance that everything will work out one day. We don't have to wonder about what's going to happen to those that reject Christ. Because the Bible says that the wrath of God abideth on them already. So the question is this. Have you put your sin dead in His hands? Have you put your salvation in His hands? That's really what we're talking about tonight. Don't take the salvation into your hands. You can't save yourself. Put your salvation in the hands of the Son of God. Say, Lord, except you save me, I can't be saved. Lord, do for me that which I cannot do for myself. And ask Christ to come into your heart and save you. He already took the load for sinners. But here's the question. Will you take the Lord for salvation? Because that's the only way that you can be saved.